Deep and meaningful conversations to connect, find calm, feel empowered and uncover clarity. Welcome to the Death Dying Diagnosis and Doulas podcast. Welcome Helen Callanan from Preparing the Way. So looking forward to talk to us today about dying at home because I think you can add so much value to people just to hear that a lot of people do in fact die at home these days, but it's sometimes it's a bit of a mindset piece and an information piece to get to that if you want to do that. So I just thought it would be fantastic if we just focus this whole discussion around that and just because I'm sure that there's a lot of people that are going to be really interested. So first up, Helen, just for those that don't know you, so tell us a little bit about you. I know you're an end-of-life doula, but what else do you do? So I also am the Managing Director and Lead Educator for Preparing the Way, End-of-Life Doula Training. So not only am I one, but I also train others and we do that across Australia and New Zealand and it's my grand passion. I'm also a natural therapist practitioner. I'm a Reiki master and teacher and practitioner. You know, for me, doulering has become all-consuming. I, I just think, you know, what you just said there about people wanting to die at home, it's so true and it is an absolutely an education piece. It can be done, but, you know, there's often a lot of obstacles in the way that can be overcome if people have enough information. You know, the stats are that 80% of people say they want to die at home, but only 20% get to achieve that. Mm. Now, that's quite a big disparity there, so I think that's worth exploring 100%. Absolutely. And I'm sure some of that is, you know, things might be just taken out of people's control. And so, you know, I'm sure there are some instances where, you know, people are in ICU or there's things that happen and it just can't be managed. But I really think that 80% to 20%, there's a very big gap in there of people that really could be dying at home, but they're not. So what do you think those reasons are? You know, so you've got somebody that, like me, for instance, it says, you know, I I really want to die at home in my own bed with my family and pets around me. What would be the things that would make that difficult for me to achieve? A few things, Jules, and I just firstly want to back up a bit and say you're absolutely right. There are times that someone's, if you like, their medical needs may be such that they really have to be in the hospital or intensive care environment. And there are still people who are under heavy medication and, 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 and heavy medical intervention and care, and they still want to go home. I've actually been in a situation where a person really wanted to go home and they were told by the doctors, no, if you go home, you'll probably die on the way home in the ambulance. And they were like, okay, I just don't want to die here. Mm. I want, you know, even if they're being on the way home was enough for them. Yeah. So that can be just a, you know, partly mindset. So getting back to what can get in the way, There's a number of things, Jules. Sometimes it can be who is around because if someone's going to die at home, they need support. They're going to need, their their care needs are likely to increase, right, as they're approaching their end of their life. So to have, you know, often there's one primary caregiver, maybe two, and that might be the partner or the wife or the child or the, 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 you know, the whoever, is someone around and that's fine but they can't do that 24-7 week in, week out. So, you know, one of the things, there was this great piece of research done by Western Sydney University back in 2015, and it was called End of Life at Home. And they did a lot of research around people who did die at home and what it took and what the gaps were. And 
one of the things they came out with was a stat that said the average number of people you need around you in your network to die at home is around 16, average 16. So now that's not including doctors and nurses. We're talking here what they call the informal network, our family, our friends, maybe our church group, our community group, maybe our colleagues from work, you know, whatever our, our organisation and the groups we belong to and our family and friends and the grandkids. and the So you need this tribe, you know, around you, this group, because... You know, and I say to families that I work with, absolutely, we'll, we'll sort this for you if you, that's what you want, that's your preference. But what we need to do is go, okay, who's in the network? Who is here that can actually, you know, be here and support this person? I say to people, I recommend that you have a minimum of two people available for your full-time care around the clock and not the same two people. Yeah. So you need, it's almost like you have shifts. You know, often what I feel like I am is a bit of a, as an end-of-life dollar, is a bit of a, like a team manager or event <laughs> manager, you know, because we've got this event happening, a pressured, sacred event, and we need to make sure we've got the right people in place at the right time, the right resources. So it's about network primarily. Another thing too is, is there in this community, is there the right or sufficient community support for home-based end-of-life care or palliative care? So is, does your council where you live have a palliative care unit that does community work? Some don't. Mm. Our rural areas, we don't, they don't have anything palliative. So again, it's about what are the resources in the area where the person is? and accessing those early as you can, putting plans in place, making sure that you've got as much resource around you. Now, there's a great website called Gather My Crew, C-R-E-W, gathermycrew.org. It might have an A-E on the end, I'm not sure. And it's basically a calendar. You know, there's so much to do. Mm. There's meals to prepare. There's the dogs to walk. There's appointments to go to. So to have a calendar where you can say to your friends and family, okay, get on this calendar. It's on a website. All of the things we need managed are there. Can you pick which ones you can do and what times? So also having someone coordinate a list of people who are like, I really want to help. I've got my hand up. What can I do? So mm. there are a couple of the primary things. Network of people, resources, and home-based palliative care because the majority of people not everybody, but the majority of people will need some level of palliative medical and nursing care. The Death, Dying, Diagnosis and Doulas podcast. Empowerment through conversation, connection through understanding. This is the Death, Dying, Diagnosis and Doulas podcast. What about equipment, Helen? You know, yep. I suppose some people might need things like hospital beds and mm-hmm. shower chairs and things like that. So in yeah, your 100%. experience, where do people get their hands on some of this equipment? Let's say a person has been having treatment, right, and they're either ageing or they're, they're dying of some illness, they were life-limiting illness or terminal illness, and they may be associated with a hospital. And that hospital may have a social worker, may have, you know, an occupational therapist as part of the team of the palliative care unit. 
they might have a community base. So sometimes you can resource it through there, right? Through those contacts. The other thing, and I've done this for my for myself, for both for clients and also my own family that I've been taking care of at home. I live with my dad at home the last two months of his life, took care of him 24-7 uh, with, with help. But we hired a hospital bed and an air mattress, which is great. It creates these ripples of air so a person isn't getting pr- as, as prone to pressure. You know, we got... We got a wheelchair, we had overbed table like you do, and we had all that set up in the lounge room. Yeah. You know, so that we yeah. could, it was ease of access. And then we had the Pell Care team coming in as often, you know, it was once a day in the end. You know, it just depends on what the needs are. And really, like, if, if for me, you know, if I look at the big picture of that, mm-hmm. for the health system, it must be mm-hmm. cheaper to keep people at home. I love the choice that people make, but you would think that the health system would be 100% behind that, to keep people out of hospital beds and expensive care and equipment if you can manage at home with some hired pieces of equipment. You know, yes. it, it yes. just makes sense to me. It absolutely does. And unfortunately, you know, you'd be surprised at the sometimes the resistance from within the medical model two people going home that the family, you know, won't be able to manage. And I think, you know, to me, it's about support. It's all about support. And medical and nursing support is critical. The majority of people as they're approaching it need that, right? And if you can get it at home and you've got the support, like a lot, there's nurse on call now, for example, you can ring up a lot of the pal care units, someone I'm working with at the moment, their local pal care unit comes and visits them, but they can ring the pal care ward anytime they want and get advice. This is happening, that's happening. Should I give you more medication? Shouldn't I? They can get advice, right? So all of that's there. But I think, you know, one of the crucial pieces of the puzzle is, is where a family or a person or, or whoever's supporting people are able to get the support of that medical team to do this at home. And, and it's critical. It absolutely takes the burden off the medical system. And especially in COVID, Julie, yeah. with all of these yeah. restrictions, to have people dying unsupported by their family and friends because of COVID restrictions, I understand they're trying to keep people safe. I get it. However, it breaks people's hearts and it causes a lot of other associated mental health stuff, guilt, um, you know, real anxiety that they can't be taking care of their person. I've helped people literally break them out of aged care and get them home to care for them, right? Because they want to be with their person. And the truth is, as someone is is approaching really end of life and they're moving into what we call the active dying stage, and that's the final stage before death happens, and often a person is unresponsive during that time, and what that means is that they may be no longer interacting. They might be very quiet still. It's almost like they're, they're, they're sleeping a lot. Sometimes they're even considered what's in a coma. Um, you know, there's a lot of support and care you can still provide at that time that doesn't need medical or nursing intervention. As long as, you know, the person's pain is managed, you know, it's a time sometimes to go for the family and the people to go, you know what, now we're going to actually stop those treatments. We're going to stop that, that so that we're not interfering in this next part of their journey. 
you know, there's a lot of evidence now, research coming out about that there's a lot more happening um, in terms of consciousness of what's happening at end of life. It's mm. not all about the medical. It's not a medical event, death. No, it's not. It's a very deeply personal and particularly family event. And so we need our doctors and our nurses 100%. I couldn't do what I do without them. Yeah. And like let's how do we focus on this being a family and home event yeah Yeah, totally agree connection is key for the death dying diagnosis and doulas podcast if we speak to you and people that work in your space reach out for a collaboration julie at doulaconnections.com.au for anyone that that really is thinking that's you know i've got a life limiting thing i know Mm. that i'm not going to be around much longer i'm aging and i want to die at home but they've tried to talk to their family about it they feel the resistance they feel the Mm. discomfort about it how could you help them like what strategies would you have for the person who wants to die at home when those around are like no 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 we don't want to talk about it we're not ready for you to die yet we don't we don't want to think about it let alone talk about it so what what would you do yeah look that's such a gosh that there's a whole podcast right there (laughs) (laughs) so there's two things to that in my experience one is Generally, people don't want to talk about it, don't want to think about it. That, that's one scenario. The other scenario is they're saying no because they're terrified. Mm. They're terrified that they will hurt their person or they won't do it right or something will happen and they, don't, they won't know what to do. And it, it, to me, it's all around education. Mm-hmm. And so going back to the first situation where people are like, no, we're not even going to deal with that, you're dying, um, you know, that to me is, is all can, can be often resolved in communication. And so as a doula, for example, I would find out the wishes of the person. Let's say it was you, I'd, what are your wishes? And then I would request to approach the family and talk to them and talk, say this is what, you know, Julie is wanting and I'd love to hear, you know, tell me what's there for you about that. And, and just try and explore with them because I'm sometimes, and you would know this yourself, it's just a part of being a human being. Sometimes when we get out of our mouth what our concerns and our fears are, we can actually see it differently. It's a bit of, as you said earlier, Joy, it's a bit of a mindset shift, right? And it doesn't always happen. Sometimes it's cultural too, Julie. Yeah. Different cultures approach end of life differently. So we've got to respect that as well. Yeah. But also it's, it's in, as individual and as Jackie Morgan from Natural Grace says, and I love this statement of hers, is, you know, as unique as we are in life, we are in our death. And it's, it's so perfectly true. Then on the other hand, where you've got people who are like, oh, my God, no, oh, my God, no, I couldn't possibly, I would then be talking to them about, so tell me, all of the things that are your concerns because that's what I would be here as an end of life doula, what I would support you in, in helping you, get you the information you need, get you the resources you need. Be a link sometimes between the medical and the nursing world and, and the person and the family because sometimes the language is like, what on earth are they talking about? And I can, if you like, simple it down so it can be understood. And, and I look, the biggest thing, Jules, I'm, and I'm so, so committed to this, in the work I do and the education that we deliver at Preparing the Way is 
you know, you're an individual and you have preferences and values and, and you know, desires and wants and needs, and as do your family. My job as an end-of-life doula is to empower you to fulfil those. And my, my, my criteria is this, is it legal and is it safe and is it possible? And you know what? There's very few things that aren't that. Mm. So as long as we're doing that and everybody is safe, and that to me is part of my job, and that's safer emotionally, mentally, physically, spiritually. You know, it, it's about helping people navigate the unknown. Yeah. We're yeah. most often frightened of what we don't understand or what we don't know. But when we know about it, um, I just had a situation recently where um, a person died and quite unexpectedly and quite suddenly. His family were overseas. So I was sort of supporting his close group of friends to navigate this time. So people are in shock, people are upset. We've got to get them in from overseas, the family. They, they sent, and, and one of them actually spoke to me and said, you know, I, I, I don't know what to do and I, I don't even know. I can't cry. I'm, I'm like, I don't know what's wrong with you. And I said, well, let's think about it. At the moment, you've only heard something. Mm. Right? You've been told that your person has died. It's not even real to you yet. So what we have to do is help people understand. So talk him through that. Then we arranged for them to go to the funeral directors where this person was being held and looked after and cared for the, the deceased person. And then they, they then did an extraordinary job on talking the family through. This is what's happened. This is what we've done. When you go into the room, this is what you're going to see. And they went in and honestly... It was miraculous. The difference between where they were and where they ended up a few days later when we finally did a beautiful ceremony of celebrating this man's life was remarkable. And it all was all through conversation, education, communication, mm. sharing, and room to explore their concerns and fears. It's not rocket science, Jules. No, it's not. It's not. So I was just thinking about the fears that people have of, mm. of dying at home. And for me, I imagine that it would be quite empowering. You know, that sounds weird, but, I mean, if I knew I was going to die in the next six mm. months, I'd throw myself into it and say, what, what can I organise? What can I do? How can I make it so that it suits me? Whereas I know a lot of other people that would be scary mm. and they wouldn't want to do that. But do you think that people that do have a say in how they die and where they die and what happens to them after they die in terms of, you know, after-death care, do you think that, 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 it's, that they feel empowered by that or do you think they feel oh, scared by that? No, 100%. You know, I started to say before that, you know, each person has, has preferences and values and needs and wants that my job as a doula is to help them achieve that. You know, to me... You think about it, when we, when we go, okay, some, this is happening in my life, right? Okay, I'm going to approach this and I'm going to think about it, I'm going to plan for it, I'm going to do find out all the bits about it. That could be planning a holiday. Mm. It could be planning mm. your retirement. It could be planning a birthday party. It's the same bloody principle, Jules, right? Yeah, it it's yeah. really where it's like, okay, this event is coming. And 
you know, that our, our job is about giving people back control, capacity and choice because here's a fact, Julie, here's a fact, that as a person is either ageing or approaching end of life through an illness or whatever, their control, their capacity and their choices are either diminishing mm. or being taken from them. Yeah. Big truth. So my thing is about, no, we've got to give that back to them because you know what you want. And if you don't know, you can ask questions, you can explore, you can research, you can find out everything you want to know and make your choices. And then you can change them if you want to too. Sure. It's not like it's set in stone. Yeah. Right? Because what you choose today, next month, you might go, oh, I just found out about this. I want to do that now. I want to do that now. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And so, mm. you know, again, it's all about conversation, research, education. You know, there's yep. something that I, I teach is about here, particularly in the West, we live life like it's life versus death, life versus aging, right? We have this whole anti-aging thing, stay young at all costs, right? But the reality is death is one of the chapters of a full life. It's not the opposite of life. Yeah. Do you get that? Totally. So if we were to start to embrace death as one of the chapters of my life, it is coming. As I say, it's a 10 <laughs> out of 10 stat. It's yeah. coming to every single person. And so if we were to embrace it and go, well, this, this, this shit's coming, you know, whether I like it or not, this is going to happen. How do I get myself educated? How mm. can I make choices? How can I have com conversations with my family? How can we work through this together so we can walk into this with our eyes open and, as you said, Julie, be empowered in this experience. Yeah, totally. Rather than a victim to it, you know. Mm, yeah, and that's it. I can't imagine having my choices removed from me and as, as a nurse I've certainly seen those things happen. Do you already know what you want? Plan now to get your wishes written down and avoid misunderstandings and possible conflict between your friends and family. Your plan will make you feel empowered and give certainty to others when you need it most. DoulaConnections.com.au Just changing the track there for a little bit now. So sure. I'm thinking about the different states in Australia. I'm thinking about people aren't going to know things like when do you ring a doctor? How long be, can people stay at home before, you know, you have to send them, send them to a funeral director? Or do you need a funeral director? Do you have right. to get a doctor into the house? Like what, what, what is all of that yeah. like and is there much difference between the states in Australia? Yes, there is difference in the states. Um, let's start with Victoria. That's where I live. Um, and it's also probably the most unlegislated, not to say there isn't legislation, but it's the least, I guess, restrictive. So in Victoria, for example, and a lot of people don't know these things, you, you, uh, when a person has died, if they've died at home or even after death and they died in an aged care facility, for example, or in a hospital, you can take your person home and care for them at home, their body. Obviously, there's safety things about that. We need to make sure that the body is kept cool. There's other things. It's not something to just randomly do. It's something to be planned and organised. I want to really stress that. But a person can be cared for at home. In Victoria, there is no time limit on the amount of time a person can be kept at home after death. Again, as long as they're kept safe and their body is being cared for appropriately. And also, too, that as long as that is, is safe for the family, right? 
commonly, you know, it, it, often people talk about this magical sort of three-day thing. Libby from, Maloney from Natural Grace, who I know you've had on, talks about there's often these three days where people have their person at home and then they're like, they're ready. Because if you think about it, when a person dies, that's a shock. And, like, if, even if I know my person is going to die, I've been in hospital by their bedside for days, waiting, waiting for this, this final thing to happen. When it does, it's something that's often still a shock for the mm. family or for the person because it's beyond their control, right? So to be able to take their person home or if the person dies at home and care for them and tend to them, then after a period of time when I've, if I'm the person who's looking after them, and I'm the family person, after a few days, I've had time to accept their death, to adjust to their death, to care for them, to spend my love on them, caring for them. Then I'm often like, okay, you know what? I'm ready now to let my person go. And that might be when they might go to a funeral director, if they do. See, in Victoria, you don't have to use a funeral director. There are three laws that are common around Australia which is that it must be a medical certificate of cause of death signed by a doctor. And if there isn't a doctor that can do that or a death was unexpected or unexplained, then that person may need to go to the coroner's to establish the cause of death, like the gentleman I was just speaking about earlier. Mm. Because mm. he died suddenly and unexpectedly, he needed to go to the coroner's for the coroner to determine what is the cause of death. So either one of those documents, medical certificate of court death or coroner's release form. The second law is that the person's body must be disposed of in a legal manner. Now, generally in Australia, there are some various methods. A lot of people don't know about that, but there are, you know, most, the most common is cremation or being buried. But these days there's natural burial in natural burial grounds. So again, there's this whole now echo friendly and, and sustainable options. A lot of people don't know about that. And that's increasingly important to people in today's world, right? Mm -hmm. And the third law uh, is that the death must be reported to births, deaths and marriages. So they're the three universal laws across Australia. Each state has some other nuances in there. For example, in New South Wales and Queensland, you can only keep your person, your deceased person at home um, for five days after death. Here in Victoria, we can have a shrouded cremation. In other words, the person doesn't have to be in a coffin. People don't know that. Whereas in New South Wales, the funeral director, you know, must be present when the person is in coffin, as mm. in placed in their coffin. So do you get what I'm saying? There's some yeah. nuance. So there's things to know, but there's a lot more flexibility than people know, Julie. Yeah, for and, sure. Uh, and getting, yeah, and so that people, it's like doing this research, it's actually quite fascinating. You know, mm -hmm. and now, of course, there's also the voluntary assisted dying, which has got different names and the laws around that are different again in each state as it's progressing and rolling out. So that can often be something in the mix for people as well. So, you know, really, depending on what state you're in, you just need to find out what the real rules are and the mm -hmm. real law. Mm -hmm. And then there's a lot, a lot more flexibility and choice in there yes. than what people say. So, Helen, would you say that uh, people dying at home, does that help the grieving process for others, you think? 100%, 100%. Because when a person is in a hospital uh, in an aged care, and, and I want to just pay due respect here to palliative care staff and also aged care staff, they do their very, very, very best. 
but they have an agenda and their agenda is is providing it's it's a, it's got a clinical background to it right and 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 correctly that's as it should be the thing about taking care of your person at home you've got time to be with your person you're not on restricted hours you're not constantly having nurses and doctors coming in and saying can you please leave the room while we do this that and the other thing just so you know you never need to do that mm. they might ask for that but you don't have to leave your person if you don't feel comfortable doing that i just want to really make that point good point um yeah i i, I don't i'm mm. like no thank you I'll, I'll stay you know you know so to me it's about you asked about them grieving. What I know 100%, I see this over and over and over again, and this is even if, even using the example of the person who died recently where his family were overseas, that they got to be a part of caring for his body and spending time with him and sitting with him, not just like, a, a, you know, a one-hour viewing where mm. they paint them up and like that traditional conventional funeral model, which... I, I don't, um, you know, I, I struggle with personally because to me to be able to be with your person in a normal and natural environment, especially in their home where they're comfortable and you're comfortable, where you can hop up on the bed with them and, and be with them if that's what you want, where the kids can be around. Children are so great at death. We are the ones who mess them up. Yeah. Right? Kids, kids are organically curious if you think about it, you know. So they're often much better and they'll be telling you things about them. And, and so it, it is, it's so much more empowering, Julie, for people to care for their person at home, to have time to grieve. Because remember, you think about it, what commonly or traditionally happens or conventionally happens is person dies, funeral director comes and gets them, gone. Maybe you might visit them for a one-hour vigil, but not many don't. The next time you see them, they're in a box at the front of a church or in a chapel or somewhere, you've got a cast of thousands around, not thousands, but a lot of people around because everyone's come to the funeral. That is a public event. And as the family, you're basically hosting this big mm. event. What about your time to grieve and to touch your person and to speak to them privately and to shed your private grief? That's where the power is, is Julie is people having time with their person privately so they can express and maybe they're crying, maybe they're not, maybe they're just talking to them, you know. There's so many beautiful stories of what families will do with their person and just sit there and adjust, giving their psyche, their heart, their spirit, their mind, their psyche the time to adjust this person that I've loved or, or even maybe not loved but I cared for them a long time, you know, they're gone and who am I now? Especially, you think about it, when someone's been a caregiver for maybe a couple of years and then all of a sudden their person dies and I, I went through this, I looked after my mum for seven years with dementia, I lived with her. When mum finally went into an aged care facility, and then subsequently died, and I spent the last um, couple of days with her in, in the aged care facility sleeping on the floor. When she died, I was like, well, who am I now? Mm. I was so identified as caregiver. I was like, who, who am I? What's my life about? What do I do with this big hole mm. that, that caring for my mum used to fill? 
you know, yeah. the caregiver role is just that's that's another whole podcast we could yeah. do. Yeah. So, so, so really more. Yeah, and that's it. So I get that. So that that having that that I suppose sacred time with, with somebody yes. just in those last few hours, days and time after death. It just seems like such an important, sacred, special time and yet most people don't get to utilise that because well, yeah. of the system that we have. Mm. And, look, I, as you know, I teach, right, and uh, I've, you know, we've had hundreds now, hundreds and hundreds of people probably seven or 800 people do the one-day foundation workshop, if not more, but, you know, that at least. And I, I can't tell you the amount of times I've had people 40, 50, 60 years of age in that workshop saying, oh, my God, I remember my favourite auntie died and she was just whisked away or my precious grandma or my mum or my dad or my little sister died. They were just whisked away. No one told me where they went. I wasn't allowed to see them. I wasn't allowed to go to the funeral. And they're now 30, 40, 50 years later still feeling that pain because there's yeah. no settling in their being of this form change of their person. Yeah. You know, I even yeah. talk about people like, you know, I know that you have your precious puppy dogs, love pups as I call them, that you love, right, that they're such a part of your family. You know, to me, one of the things I talk to people is don't forget when someone dies, if they've had a pet for a long time that's connected, really connected, make sure the pet can be with the person after they've died. Yeah. The pet needs to know that they haven't just abandoned them and left. The pet needs to know there's been a form change. Mm. This person is different now. And, and they'll do that through, you know, through their scent, through their smell, through through their, their, their nose and just their, 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 their own being, you know, because mm. they're incredible feeling beings, you know. Yeah, for sure. Oh, I love that. And I'm the same. I definitely would want to have whatever animals I, I have at the time, I would definitely yeah. want to have them around. So some final tips for people. Again, just talk me through the whole doctor thing. So, you know, okay. I, I imagine that most people that are dying at home have, have, you know, their doctor knows. I mean, it's trying to get, you know, home visits these days is, seems impossible. So right. what if somebody has been at home for the last three or four months, they might have seen their doctor or, yeah. or talked yeah. to them on the phone because of the new telehealth stuff that's around. Where does that leave doctors in the family? What, what is required in terms of doctors' input into people dying at home and yeah. when do people need to call the doctor and say mm -hmm. the person okay. died? Like how does all that work? Yeah. yeah, sure. So there are sort of different guidelines, I guess, and different expectations. So let's talk about for someone that has been under the care of a doctor or a pal care unit perhaps, and they've been at home and they've maybe the nurse has been coming going, you know, that or the doctor's been coming going, or their GP's been looking after them ongoingly, and the person is is, if you like, imminently dying, and they die at home. Let's start there, right? They die at home. And but everyone's known that this has been coming and finally it's come. There is no need to ring anyone immediately. It's not like you go, oh, my God, I've got to ring the doctor, I've got to ring Triple O or I've got to ring the ambulance. You don't. When a person's death is expected, then there is no urgency. Put the kettle on. You know, call the family. 
be with your person. You know, it's fine to tell the pal care team the next morning. You know what I mean? It's like there's no urgency because it's been expected. Mm-hmm. Right? In a, for example, in an aged care facility, I was with my mum just as an example, and I was, you know, with her and in her active dying stage and sitting right up at the bed with her and talking to her and encouraging her and just loving on her. And I knew her breath was changing and she was actively dying right then. After she died, I didn't move. I just kept sitting there with her because I believe that there's still an ongoing process of this person. Mm. They don't just sort of die and then it's all over. You know, there's this process from what what I've observed. Mm -hmm. There's still more happening. Anyway. That's a whole other, another podcast. We're going to seriously. <laughs> so then I just stayed right there with mum. I didn't get up and tell the nurse. I didn't leave mum. I didn't want to leave mum then. So I was there about an hour or so later and the nurse came in and she said, oh, I thought I'd come and check on how you and your mum are doing. And she went, oh, you know, realising that mum had died. I said, yeah, she died. And I happened to look at the clock and I said, she mm. died at 10.25. She went, oh, okay, do you want me to call the funeral record? I said, no, no, no. I said, I'm not going anywhere nor is mum tonight. We're staying here tonight and we'll deal with all that tomorrow. And mm. so I just settled in with mum. Yeah. So, you know, to me, you know how we talk about that a, that a, a woman who's having a baby labours? Mm-hmm. And then to, to me, I, I believe that there's a, there's a sort of a labouring that goes on in death. And we say rest in peace yep. when someone's died, right? So I, I think let's just let them rest now. Yeah. And not rush them off to the funeral records. Um, and some people want to do that. And there's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. But getting back to your question about who we need to tell. If, on the other hand, someone dies suddenly, unexpectedly, if you walked into a room and you were like, oh, my God, or someone fell in front of you, you would ring triple O and you would immediately do that. You don't delay even, you know, because you, you want to make sure that that person, number one, Maybe they can be resuscitated if that's what they wanted, but if they don't, you need to have an advanced care directive done saying that, and it's got to be there so the ambulance drivers won't resuscitate. Do you get what I'm saying? There's a whole yeah. thing around. There's another podcast there. But it is. It's like you don't have to tell anybody immediately. The next morning is fine. Then the doctor, remember, the doctor has to sign the medical certificate of cause of death or MCCD as we call it. And like when mum died, for example, in the aged care facility, Next morning, I rang the funeral directors. They came. They took mum to the funeral directors, which is where mum had said she, she was very clear what she wanted to happen after her death. I would have taken her, but that wasn't what she wanted. The doctor had said he would, because mum had been being looked after for some time in the facility, the doctor had said he would sign the MCCD. So I actually drove past the doctor's clinic, picked up the MCCD, took a copy of it to the funeral director because they needed that to be mm. able to get them mum cremated yeah so you know so does that answer that yeah it does no that's good well Helen I think uh, every series that we have <laughs> I'll get you've got to come and talk to us because you are just an absolute fountain of information and I know how passionate you are in the end of life space so if people do want to find out more about your sure. business or or even a website where they can go and start to collect information if they do want to die at home what could you yes. recommend for that as well our one for about end of life doors, either if they want to use an end of life door or they would they're interested in finding out both also, tell us both yeah and also doing the one day foundation workshop we cover all of this in that right and that is what we call our foundation workshop end of life doula because sometimes people want to be a doula for one 
yeah just for one yeah. precious person but some people want to do it in their community yeah. so that's www.preparingtheway.com.au or yep. you can email us at inquiries at preparingtheway.com.au yep. so that's the best yeah. way for that other than that look there really are a gazillion websites out there um, right off the top of my head nothing's coming to me julie what i'm happy to do is send you a few resources um, and I think you've got some at Dollar Connections, haven't you? You've got a, an amazing Yeah, yeah, we've got a really good, um, yeah. So, www.doulaconnections.com.au, I've got a, yeah. a fountain of links there as well. I just thought you might have pointed us to one that you thought was particularly useful, but that's okay. We can yeah. add it in when we post the podcast. Yeah, absolutely, because I, I think because there's so many different avenues to it, Julie, so it really, yeah. it's hard to just go, here's one. Yeah, sure. Just one question. If yeah. I did want to die at home yeah. and I just didn't know how to organise things and what I could do, could I do that one day foundation course for myself? 100%. Oh, yeah. that's interesting. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, because it's about getting the information. We give out a yeah. lot of resources. We work through all of the different stages. You know, sometimes it's like people want to do it with their family person. So mm. you might do it yourself to go home and, and go home and, okay, I'm going to talk to hubby about this. We're going to plan right. this. You know, that's beautiful. Or I'm going to talk to my kids. Uh, 100%. Yeah. yeah, it's a great, great way to empower people. All right, thanks so much, Helen, and thanks. see you again awesome. later. Bye. We hope you found this conversation and information interesting, helpful, and empowering with the Death, Dying, Diagnosis, and Doulas podcast. Help us empower others by rating and reviewing us wherever you listen. 